0: Well, as I mentioned earlier, today is the second Sunday of Advent. It's the second Sunday of a new Christian year. The word Advent just means arrival or coming. This is a season for reflection and repentance in preparation for Christmas. Even as we deck the halls, so to speak, with lights and decorations and joyful music, The church has traditionally seen fit to spend a few weeks in sober contemplation of the full meaning of the coming of Christ. Why is his coming such good news? Why did we need him to come in the first place? We're here to feel the the weight of the darkness in our own hearts and in the world around us, which should increase our sense of longing as we anticipate the birth of our Savior. So last week, Justin McGinn kicked off our Advent series with a sermon on the triumphal entry of Jesus into Jerusalem, which is an interesting place for the season of Advent to start. It's like a movie that opens by foreshadowing a a climactic scene. A king is being crowned. Crowds are shouting his name. And just as the coronation scene reaches a crescendo, the screen goes black and we read the words three years earlier. And so today we jump backwards in time to Luke chapter 3, where John, the prophet and herald of the coming Messiah, is baptizing and preaching repentance in the wilderness around the Jordan River. But before we look into the ministry of John and the priority of repentance, I want to read the first two verses of Luke chapter 3 again. This is how Luke introduces John. In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate being governor of Judea, and Herod being tetrarch of Galilee, and his brother Philip tetrarch of the region of Iturea and Trachonitis, and Lysanias tetrarch of Abilene. During the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John the son of Zechariah in the wilderness. So Luke opens with historical data. He takes the time to name the Roman emperor and governors and the Jewish high priests during the ministry of John. Now, th- this was a common way of dating important events in the ancient world. But aside from knowing the precise date, what can we learn from this? Well, we learned that the message of Advent is a political message. A new king is coming onto the world stage. This is not just a Jewish event. The birth of the Messiah is a world-changing event. The kingdom of God will affect everyone and everything. We sing during the season, let, let every heart prepare him room. Let every heart prepare him room. It's more than hearts. It's more than just hearts. The rulers of the world are going to have to make room for the advent of this king. But, but more fundamentally, at a foundational level, this list of rulers indicates That the Gospel of Luke is recording very real historical events. The story of the Bible is the story of real human history. Christianity is not just a philosophical tradition, it's not just a a system of beliefs or a worldview or a mindset. As Christians, we believe in actual real world events. We reorient our entire existence, not simply around a system of doctrine, but around historical realities. And this has implications for the manner in which we observe the season of Advent. During the season of Advent, we are not just reorienting ourselves toward a powerful myth. We are not just reorienting ourselves so as to keep the Christ in Christmas. We are reorienting ourselves to real historical realities, to the world as it truly is. And so this is the most sane thing we could be doing in a season like this. Reorienting ourselves to the world as it truly is. So Luke introduces us to a prophet named John, the son of Zechariah. We know that John is a prophet because of this phrase at the end of verse 2, the word of God came to john we don't see this phrase anywhere else in the new testament but we see it all over the old testament the word of the lord came to nathan the word of the lord came to elijah the word of the lord came to isaiah the word of the lord came to jeremiah the word of the lord came to ezekiel the word of the lord came to jonah i could keep going but that would be tedious you get the idea john the son of zechariah is a prophet The word of God has come to him. In fact, in in Luke chapter 7, Jesus says that John is much more than a prophet. I tell you, among those born of women, none is greater. Imagine having Jesus, who was himself born of a woman, say that about you. It's pretty astonishing. Not Elijah, not David, not Moses, not Abraham, certainly not Caesar or Pilate or the high priest. None is greater than John. None is greater than this obscure, seemingly socially awkward, bearded bug eater. He lives in the wilderness and he pours water on people for a living. How could, how could this guy be the goat? Obviously, John is not great in ways that we usually associate with greatness. He was the son of a priest, but it doesn't seem like he had any real structural authority. His power was derived entirely from his message and his manner of living. He had no money. He had no militia. He wrote no books. So again, what what made John so great? Let's keep reading for an answer. We've seen that John is a prophet, but now we also see that John is a prophet who himself fulfills prophecy. Luke quotes from the opening verses of Isaiah chapter 40. The voice of one crying in the wilderness. John is that one crying in the wilderness. Prepare the way of the Lord. Make his paths straight. Every valley shall be filled and every mountain and hill shall be made low and the crooked shall become straight. And the rough places shall become level ways, and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. Again, these verses come from Isaiah chapter 40. For 39 chapters, the book of Isaiah talks about Israel's manifold failures and blood guilt. For 39 chapters, the book of Isaiah promises forgiveness. Promises forgiveness. That's as far as it gets. The promise of forgiveness. But Isaiah chapter 40 brings that promise to bear. Comfort, comfort, my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. The promise of chapters 1 through 39 is beginning to find fulfillment in chapter 40. God is coming to offer forgiveness to his people. Forgiveness to his people. And John, the son of Zechariah, is living in the wilderness, offering a baptism of repentance and preparing the way for the advent of Christ. He's preparing the way for the advent of forgiveness. So why repentance? Why Was John offering a baptism of repentance? Because forgiveness was coming. The advent of Christ was the advent of forgiveness. But the condition was and is repentance. To receive the forgiveness of God, we have to repent before God. And so what made John so great? What made John so great? That is what made John so great. He led the way on a path of repentance. He was quick to humble himself. Out of everyone, he was the first to make himself low, the first to confess his unworthiness, the first to repent of his sin. That's what made him great. You see, John is very assertive in this passage, uh, but he's assertive precisely because forgiveness is coming. His words sound harsh, but they are the words of a man whose vocation and entire purpose in life was to prepare the people to receive the forgiveness that was coming to them in the person of Christ. You brood of vipers, he says. Who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruits in keeping with repentance and do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father, for I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now, the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Again, this, this sounds harsh, it sounds judgmental, but it's actually merciful. John's job was to was to foster a spirit of national repentance. John's job was to prepare the nation of Israel to receive her Messiah. To break the hardened hearts of the people so that those hearts could be healed and restored and forgiven. John calls the crowd a brood of vipers. The word brood just means offspring. John is telling the crowd that they are sons and daughters of the serpent. They're sons and daughters of Satan. That's why he goes on to talk about raising up who? Children for Abraham, the sons and daughters of Abraham. The sons and daughters of the serpent are living under the curse of God. But the sons and daughters of Abraham are living in accordance with the promise of God. And so John says, repent. Stop listening to the serpent. If you fancy yourself a child of Abraham... Perhaps you should try living like your father, Abraham. The true children of Abraham live by faith. They trust the promise of God. God said to Abraham, I'm going to bless the nations through you. I will make you the father of a multitude of nations and kings will come from you. Abraham couldn't see how that was possible. He wasn't yet a father to anyone, much less a multitude but he trusted the promise of God. And not only that, he lived accordingly. He wasn't perfect. He had moments of weakness. He doubted the promise. He failed to trust the promise at times. But the arc of his life bent toward the promise that had been spoken over him by God. And that is what it means to be a child of Abraham. The arc of your life bends toward the promise of God the ark of your life is lived under the banner of the gospel. The children of the serpent cannot claim that. So according to John, the son of Zechariah, how are we to prepare the way of the Lord? How are we to make his path straight? Or in other words, how are we to observe this season of Advent? He says, bear fruits in keeping with Repentance. Bear fruits in keeping with repentance. Repent of your sins and see to it that the ark of your life bends toward the promise of God. Live in accordance with the gospel. Live as if the gospel is true. Take all of the gospel's implications and put them into practice with your manner of living. Lift up the valleys. Meaning, lift up the poor and broken. Make low the mountains, meaning humble the proud. Bring down the oppressor. Make crooked places straight and rough places level, meaning pursue peace and justice for everybody. In short, usher in the kingdom by living like kingdom citizens. Forgiveness is coming in the person of Jesus Christ, and we prepare for his coming by waging war against the sin and darkness and injustice. For a garden to grow, the gardener must first clear the brush. The gardener must first get rid of the thorns and thistles. Likewise, before the kingdom can come, we have to clear the brush. We have to repent of our sins. We have to forsake our sins. Because sin is what divides us, and sin is what chokes out the kingdom. Verses 10 to 14 give us a picture of what it looks like to bear fruits in keeping with repentance. For John's audience, it meant that those with more than enough clothing were to clothe others. Those with more than enough food were to feed others. It meant that tax collectors were called to be honest in all of their dealings. It meant that soldiers were prohibited from taking advantage of the less powerful. It meant that all workers should be content with their wages. For modern Christians, it probably looks a bit different. If God has given you a house, he's calling you to share it. If your pantry is full, God is calling you to feed others. But if you're a school teacher, God is calling you to shepherd the minds and hearts and souls of children Toward all that is true and good and beautiful. The world is God's. It's God's good world, and you are teaching them to know it and to love it. If you're in management, He's calling you to care for your employees, to bring out the best in them, to compensate them well. If you're a homemaker, He's calling you to be diligent about raising godly children and creating a warm and welcoming environment for outsiders. If you're an engineer, He's calling you to exercise godly dominion. Care for the earth, of course, but use the raw materials of the earth to create something good and beneficial. If you're in finance, he's calling you not to exploit others, especially the poor. He wants you to pursue win win agreements and to foster widespread prosperity. If you're in medicine, He wants you to join him in healing the sick and caring for the hurting and restoring the broken. If you're an attorney, he's calling you to pursue truth, to labor for a more safe, more just, more fair society. If you're retired, he's calling you to use that extra time in service to your neighbors, to your brothers and sisters in Christ, to the church. So just, just ask yourself, if, if Jesus were me, if Jesus were a school teacher or an engineer or a homemaker, if Jesus were retired, how would he pursue faithfulness? Each and every person in this room has been strategically placed by God in their working world in order to make a kingdom difference there. In order to raise the valleys and lower the mountains and make the crooked straight. To quote one theologian, if now we have, if, if now we could have faith enough to believe that all human life can be lived with divine purpose, that God saves not only the soul, but the whole of human life, that anything which serves to make mankind healthy, intelligent, happy, and good is a service to the Father of mankind. That the kingdom of God is not bounded by the church, but includes all human relations, then all professions would be hallowed and receive religious dignity. A man making a shoe or arguing a law case or planting potatoes or teaching school could feel that this was itself a contribution to the welfare of mankind and indeed his main contribution to it. So today, And this week, I would encourage you to give some thought to your life and vocation. Spend some time in prayer about your working world, what you do on a daily basis. Are you ready there for the advent of the Lord? Are you prepared for his coming? Are you bearing fruits in keeping with repentance? Examine your life and work, examine your household, examine the world around you. Is the path clear? Is the way straight? Is the ground level? Or do we have opportunities for repentance? Christmas Day is coming, and it's going to be great and joyful, but for now we have some soul-searching to do. The proper way to prepare the way is to repent. And more than that, to, to bear fruits in keeping with repentance. So take your sin seriously. Commit to living righteously. Care for the poor and the downtrodden. Work and pray for peace and justice. Make his path straight. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come to you humbly in a spirit of repentance. And we thank you for your words of comfort the words of comfort that you have spoken over us out of Isaiah chapter 40. Jesus, we long for your coming. Come into our hearts, come into our lives, be present within our church. May your kingdom come in oak forest. And ultimately we long for your final coming, your second coming to consummate your new creation. Holy Spirit, work in us to bear these fruits of repentance. Lift up the valleys, lower the mountains, make the crooked straight and the rough level. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.